0: Chapter Thirty One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court. Chapter Thirty One. Marco. We strolled along in a sufficiently indolent fashion now and talked. We must dispose of about the amount of time it ought to take to go to the little hamlet of Ablesore and put justice on the track of those murderers and get back home again. And meantime I had an auxiliary interest which had never paled yet, never lost its novelty for me, since I had been in Arthur's kingdom—the behavior, born of nice and exact subdivisions of caste, of chance passers-by toward each other. Toward the shaven monk who trudged along with his cowl tilted back, and the sweat washing down his fat jowls, the coal-burner was deeply reverent. To the gentleman he was abject. With the small farmer and the free mechanic he was cordial and gossipy. And when a slave passed by with a countenance respectfully lowered, this chap's nose was in the air, he couldn't even see him. Well there are times when one would like to hang the whole human race and finish the farce presently we struck an incident a small mob of half-naked boys and girls came tearing out of the woods scared and shrieking the eldest among them were not more than twelve or fourteen years old they implored help but they were so beside themselves that we couldn't make out what the matter was however we plunged into the wood they scurrying in the lead and the trouble was quickly revealed. They had hanged a little fellow with a bark-rope, and he was kicking and struggling in the process of choking to death. We rescued him and fetched him around. It was some more human nature, the admiring little folk imitating their elders. They were playing mob, and had achieved a success which promised to be a good deal more serious than they had bargained for. It was not a dull excursion for me. I managed to put in the time very well. I made various acquaintanceships and in my quality of stranger was able to ask as many questions as I wanted to. A thing which naturally interested me as a statesman was the matter of wages. I picked up what I could under that head during the afternoon. A man who hasn't had much experience and doesn't think is apt to measure a nation's prosperity or lack of prosperity by the mere size of the prevailing wages. If the wages be high, the nation is prosperous. If, low, it isn't. Which is an error. It isn't what sum you get, it's how much you can buy with it. That's the important thing, and it's that that tells whether your wages are high in fact or only high in name. I could remember how it was in the time of our great civil war in the nineteenth century. In the North a carpenter got three dollars a day, gold valuation. In the South he got fifty payable in Confederate shin-plasters worth a dollar a bushel. In the North a suit of overalls cost $3, a day's wages. In the South it cost 75 which was two days' wages. Other things were in proportion. Consequently, wages were twice as high in the North as they were in the South, because the one wage had that much more purchasing power than the other had yes i made various acquaintances in the hamlet and a thing that gratified me a good deal was to find our new coins in circulation lots of millrays lots of mills lots of cents a good many nickels and some silver all this among the artisans and commonalty generally yes and even some gold but that was at the bank that is to say the goldsmith's I dropped in there while Marco, the son of Marco, was haggling with a shopkeeper over a quarter of a pound of salt, and asked for change for a twenty-dollar gold piece. They furnished it—that is, after they had chewed the piece, and wrung it on the counter, and tried acid on it, and asked me where I got it, and who I was, and where I was from, and where I was going to, and when I expected to get there, and perhaps a couple of hundred more questions. And when they got aground— I went right on and furnished them a lot of information voluntarily, told them I owned a dog, and his name was Watch, and my first wife was a free-will Baptist, and her grandfather was a prohibitionist, and I used to know a man who had two thumbs on each hand and a wart on the inside of his upper lip, and died in the hope of a glorious resurrection, and so on, and so on, and so on, till even that hungry village questioner began to look satisfied and also a shade put out but he had to respect a man of my financial strength and so he didn't give me any lip but i noticed he took it out of his underlings which was a perfectly natural thing to do yes they changed my twenty but i judged it strained the bank a little which was a thing to be expected for it was the same as walking into a paltry village store in the nineteenth century and requiring the boss of it to change a two-thousand-dollar bill for you all of a sudden he could do it maybe But at the same time he would wonder how a small farmer happened to be carrying so much money around in his pocket which was probably this goldsmith's thought too for he followed me to the door and stood there gazing after me with reverent admiration our new money was not only handsomely circulating but its language was already glibly in use That is to say, people had dropped the names of the former monies, and spoke of things as being worth so many dollars, or cents, or mills, or millrays. now. It was very gratifying. We were progressing, that was sure. I got to know several master mechanics, but about the most interesting fellow among them was the blacksmith, Dowley. He was a live man and a brisk talker, and had two journeymen and three apprentices, and was doing a raging business. In fact, he was getting rich, hand over fist, and was vastly respected. Marco was very proud of having such a man for a friend. He had taken me there, ostensibly, to let me see the big establishment which bought so much of his charcoal, but really to let me see what easy and almost familiar terms he was on with this great man. Dowley and I fraternized at once. I had had just such picked men, splendid fellows, under me in the Colt Arms factory. I was bound to see more of him, so I invited him to come out to Marco's, Sunday, and dine with us. Marco was appalled and held his breath, but when the grandee accepted he was so grateful that he almost forgot to be astonished at the condescension. Marco's joy was exuberant, but only for a moment. Then he grew thoughtful, then sad, and when he heard me tell Dowley I should have Dickon, the boss mason, and Smug, the boss wheelwright, out there, too—the coal dust on his face turned to chalk, and he lost his grip. But I knew what was the matter with him. It was the expense. He saw ruin before him. He judged that his financial days were numbered. However, on our way to invite the others, I said, You must allow me to have these friends come, and you must also allow me to pay the costs. His face cleared and he said with spirit but not all of it not all of it ye cannot well bear a burden like to this alone i stopped him and said now let's understand each other on the spot old friend i am only a farm bailiff it is true but i am not poor nevertheless i have been very fortunate this year you would be astonished to know how i have thriven I tell you the honest truth when I say I could squander away as many as a dozen feasts like this, and never care that for the expense.' And I snapped my fingers. I could see myself rise a foot at a time in Marco's estimation, and when I fetched out those last words I was become a very tower for style and altitude. So you see, you must let me have my way. You can't contribute a cent to this orgy. That's settled.' "'It's grand and good of you—no, it isn't. You've opened your house to Jones and me in the most generous way. Jones was remarking upon it today, just before you came back from the village. For although he wouldn't be likely to say such a thing to you, because Jones isn't a talker and is diffident in society, he has a good heart and a grateful, and knows how to appreciate it when he is well treated.' Yes, you and your wife have been very hospitable toward us. Ah, brother, tis nothing, such hospitality. But it is something. The best a man has, freely given, is always something, and is as good as a prince can do, and ranks right along beside it, for even a prince can but do his best. And so we'll shop around and get up this layout now, and don't you worry about the expense.' I'm one of the worst spendthrifts that ever was born. Why, do you know, sometimes in a single week I uh, spend—but never mind about that. You'd never believe it anyway. And so we went gadding along, dropping in here and there, pricing things, and gossiping with the shopkeepers about the riot, and now and then running across pathetic reminders of it in the persons of shunned and tearful and houseless remnants of families whose homes had been taken from them, and their parents butchered or hanged. The raiment of Marco and his wife was of coarse tow-linen, and lindsey-woolsey, respectively, and resembled township maps, it being made up pretty exclusively of patches which had been added, township by township, in the course of five or six years, until hardly a hand's-breadth of the original garments was surviving and present. Now I wanted to fit these people out with new suits, on account of that swell company, and I didn't know just how to get at it, with delicacy, until at last it struck me that, as I had already been liberal in inventing wordy gratitude for the king, it would be just the thing to back it up with evidence of a substantial sort. So I said, "'And, Marco, there's another thing which you must permit, out of kindness for Jones, because you wouldn't want to offend him. He was very anxious to testify his appreciation in some way, but he is so diffident he couldn't venture it himself, and so he begged me to buy some little things and give them to you and Dame Phyllis, and let him pay for them without your ever knowing they came from him. You know how a delicate person feels about that sort of thing, and so I said I would, and we would keep Mum. Well, his idea was, a new outfit of clothes for you both." oh it is wastefulness it may not be brother it may not be consider the vastness of the sum hang the vastness of the sum try to keep quiet for a moment and see how it would seem a body can't get in a word edgewise you talk so much you ought to cure that marco it isn't good form you know and it will grow on you if you don't check it yes we'll step in here now and price this man's stuff don't forget to remember to not let on to jones that you know he had anything to do with it you can't think how curiously sensitive and proud he is he's a farmer pretty fairly well-to-do farmer and i'm his bailiff but the imagination of that man why sometimes when he forgets himself and gets to blowing off you'd think he was one of the swells of the earth and you might listen to him a hundred years and never take him for a farmer, especially if he talked agriculture. He thinks he's a she-all of a farmer, thinks he's old Grayback from way back, but between you and me privately he don't know as much about farming as he does about running a kingdom. Still, whatever he talks about, you want to drop your under-jaw and listen, the same as if you had never heard such incredible wisdom in all your life before and were afraid you might die before you got enough of it. That will please Jones. It tickled Marco to the marrow to hear about such an odd character, but it also prepared him for accidents. And in my experience, when you travel with a king who is letting on to be something else, and can't remember it more than about half the time, you can't take too many precautions—' This was the best store we had come across yet. It had everything in it, in small quantities, from anvils and dry goods, all the way down to fish and pinchbeck jewelry. I concluded I would bunch my whole invoice right here and not go pricing around any more, so I got rid of Marco by sending him off to invite the mason and the wheelwright, which left the field free to me. For I never care to do thing in a quiet way. It's got to be theatrical, or I don't take any interest in it. I showed up money enough, in a careless way, to corral the shopkeeper's respect, and then I wrote down a list of the things I wanted, and handed it to him to see if he could read it. He could, and was proud to show that he could. He said he had been educated by a priest, and could both read and write. He ran it through, and remarked with satisfaction that it was a pretty heavy bill. Well, and so it was, for a little concern like that. I was not only providing a swell dinner, but some odds and ends of extras. I ordered that the things be carted out, and delivered at the dwelling of Marco, the son of Marco, by Saturday evening, and send me the bill at dinner-time Sunday. He said I could depend upon his promptness and exactitude. It was the rule of the house. He also observed that he would throw in a couple of miller guns for the Marcos gratis, that everybody was using them now. He had a mighty opinion of that clever device. I said, and please fill them up to the middle mark, too, and add that to the bill. He would with pleasure. He filled them, and I took them with me. I couldn't venture to tell him that the miller gun was a little invention of my own, and that I had officially ordered that every shopkeeper in the kingdom keep them on hand and sell them at government price, which was the merest trifle, and the shopkeeper got that, not the government. We furnished them for nothing." The king had hardly missed us when we got back at nightfall. He had early dropped again into his dream of a grand invasion of Gaul, with the whole strength of his kingdom at his back, and the afternoon had slipped away without his ever coming to himself again. End of chapter 31